0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning, and uh, whoops. Sometimes you get the bear, and sometimes the bear gets you, and I had forgotten to turn it that bear off. But we got him turned off now, and you're listening to America's Web Radio and David's Pick, and we have a very special guest on. I've been looking forward to this because... Gary has been out here before, and uh, we're delighted to have Gary Kelly, Lieutenant Colonel, retired, and uh, he's in the studio with us, and he's a good-looking guy sitting across from me, and uh, we're uh, looking forward to talking to him about his experience, and he's also got some great advice, but before we get started, we're going to continue with our what we've started recently, or not that recently, a couple of months ago. And that is just a brief moment, about a minute, minute and a half of silence, and that we ask you to pray for our veterans, our active duty folks. And obviously today we need to pray for those that have been sent back or are in Afghanistan. And uh, Carrie and I are going to talk a little bit about that. After we get back, so we'll be back in just a minute. And we do uh, thank you for joining us in uh, in just a brief moment, and we all need those brief moments, and um, our country right now is uh, going through some things that I personally never anticipated, even as a kid or anything else, and uh, we've got some... Um, High bridges to cross, I'm afraid, as uh, our country is going. And uh, we look at what's happening in Afghanistan. And uh, thank you, sir. Um, we look at what's happening in Afghanistan. And uh, carry your experience in Vietnam. I guess I would be negligent if I didn't ask. How do you compare the two uh, the retreat from Saigon and uh, the
2: chaos from Afghanistan uh, it's It's actually scaringly similar to the two are pretty much the same. Uh, the difference is in Vietnam, and about the only difference is in Vietnam, we finished our war essentially in seventy two and uh the south vietnamese had held off the north vietnamese in an april what they call the easter offensive they had held off the nva the north vietnamese in the in 1972 in the offensive and when they came back and invaded south vietnam from the north in 75 um the reason the south vietnamese army in my view didn't hold as well as we would have wanted them to hold and hope that they would hold is that Congress had cut off the supply of ammunition and repair parts, and it cut off the Eighth Air Force support um, for them. But the but the images of the people trying to get on a helicopter on top of the embassy, and I, I told you before we went on on the air, um, it it literally makes me physically sick to watch it. I finally asked my wife to turn to turn off the TV and find find a movie or a sporting event or anything we could watch that didn't where I didn't have to look at these people it's It's a terrible feeling to look at it. you know I think
1: in my opinion, our Constitution is one of the greatest documents ever written. With that said, I think our forefathers, most, if not all, had served in the militia or or had some kind of experience with a weapon, and um, you know, like you said, in for Vietnam, and now we're seeing it in Afghanistan, where Congress, I, I believe, I totally believe in checks and balances, and I totally believe in that we have a civilian Congress that uh, dictates some military policy, uh, and if not literally, figuratively, by the budget. And, uh, you know, I have always as long as I can remember knowing anything about government, have felt like our Congress people should all have served. and I've forgotten the statistics today, but it's a it's a very small uh, percentage of our congressmen that have ever ever
2: served. The last I heard David, it was less than three percent of Congress have actually. Been uh, have actually been on active duty, of served military service.
1: You know, it's sort of like Congress setting up rules of engagement. What the hell do they know about when somebody has a AK forty seven under their robe and they're shooting at you? You want to wait and make sure it's an AK
2: forty
1: seven. That's right. And uh, I just for for them to make. Policy and and at the same token, I don't want to be misunderstood. I I don't believe in the military having full and unlimited power, but there's got to be some kind of better understanding. And one of the things that, as you were saying, the the scenes from them. from from Afghanistan now and then the treasure chove that we've just given China and Russia in our arms our drones and our other weapons that they will know and have our technology right before them and uh, I that shouldn't happen
2: well, I I saw the um, or heard the president's interview with the Stephanopoulos last night on the news, and his answer to that was, "What were we supposed to do if we took away all the weapons and the equipment?" And I'm paraphrasing; this wasn't his exact words, but then how would the um, how would the Afghan army be able to defend against this onslaught from the Taliban? Well, obviously they weren't able to defend, and and General Caldwell who was the uh, one of the uh, lieutenant general William Caldwell uh, had come back uh, back in 2011 and 12 and said that we were making incredible progress training these people and um, it we can't always impose the type of army a democracy can generate on a country that doesn't understand the concept of democracy and, and operates at a third grade level as far as literacy um I I read uh, one article where they talked about when they were in the training process for this 350,000-member security force that some of the people couldn't count to three or four. They had to say the words, one, two, three, four, whatever the words are in, in Afghan, uh, because they n- never learned how to count. They never learned the name of a color. So. This is a whole different culture that we're dealing with, and it really Af- Afghanistan itself is a country of I don't know how many tribes, but it's a tribal country. And I suspect ten years from now they're going to be killing each other. The Taliban's going to fall apart, and they always have. Yeah, and and they're going they're going to end up fighting tribal warfare again. So good, let them have it. They, you know, I'm glad we're out. Well.
1: You know, like I said earlier, uh, our one fault has not has never been been understanding the people across the sea from us, no matter which sea it is or anything else. And uh, you know, in many ways, although they've always been an ally, we've never understood France, and uh, we've certainly never understood a lot of other countries and we've sort of gone into situations saying well everybody's like us well there ain't nobody else like us No, (laughs) you can't find them anywhere and uh,
2: it's absolutely true
1: I uh, I've always been since I was in I was at the end of the draft and in the lottery and then volunteer and uh, you know it was it was just basic and a i t was quite awakening you know uh to see the and i I'm very supportive of of the uh volunteer military that person that raises their hand today loves the United States of america, and I always have to throw a plug in for my major my my son that's a major in the air force. Uh, okay. I love him to death and,
2: and you know, very, very proud of him. Well, God bless him. Take care of him. Thank you, sir. um When I, I went in as an ROTC commission, as a second lieutenant, I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and I detailed a lot of this in my last interview with you, uh, so I don't want to cover all that ground, but my Vietnam service was about 18 and a half months, and um I commanded troops by that time, I was a captain, and I commanded troops both in infantry and artillery in combat and um, I don't know how to explain the difference between because there's so many nuances and difference. The difference between commanding troops in a combat situation and and in a peacetime situation it's completely different. I can tell you this. I learned, and I've said this before. I, I learned that combat, and and whether that be Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam, you see the the most incredible bravery and things that you'll ever see in your life, and then you see some of the worst things you'll ever see in your life. And um, the trouble is, you we can't count on everybody to view things both from a moral political or or ethical point of view the way we do um i i listened to one of the taliban being interviewed and uh he was um i I won't call what he was doing an interview he was talking to one of the reporters with of course his ak-47 slung over his shoulder and he said they were going to be much more cognizant of women's rights and um and they were going to try to uh Patch. At, this is not his words; these of mine. Somehow restore the relationship between themselves and the Afghans who may have been in the army. I doubt that very seriously. The minute the the minute the press pulls out of there, I have serious doubts that uh, either of those groups are going to be protected. Um, I can tell you that that they don't. Um, I didn't see any evidence that they were willing to let, freely let the civilians who wanted to leave Afghanistan get into the airport. I didn't see that. They've got the airport surrendered. I mean, surrounded, That's excuse right, me. Yeah. Uh, I want to read you something about Afghanistan. I, I In anticipation of coming here, and then I'll shut up and we can talk a little bit. But um, this was written by Rudyard Kipling, I don't know how many years ago, but I think it probably came about the time of Gunga Din, if you remember the movie Gunga Din, and the, and the book or, or the writing Gunga Din and this this was Rudyard Kipling he said when you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's planes and the women come out to cut up what remains just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains and go to God like a soldier so this is nothing new with Afghanistan uh, the The foreign powers that have tried to control Afghanistan have never been able to do so as far back as Rudyard Kipling. I think in those days it was probably the French Foreign Legion. Um, We're better out of there, but I'm sorry we had to leave in the chaos and the disgrace that we did.
1: Well, I'll take, realizing I'm only, or was only an E5, but I'll, I'll take exception with you a little bit in that I don't think we had to leave like we did. I think no. this was incredibly poor planning. And, you know, I I try not to watch much of what they call news today, but I do watch television. And I'm sorry, but... not No, I'm not sorry. But the fact is, our best presidents... Have always been surrounded by the best people around. Hopefully, and hopefully, and you look at the people that surround Biden now. And I know where you get to. I didn't know that dementia, dementia was contagious, but it seems like all of his staffers have one shape or form of. Uh, some type of uh, neurological brain disease. And uh, whoever has directed the withdrawal, I, I'd make you a bet, Kerry, that whoever has directed it never
2: served a day in the military. Um, I don't know. The Secretary of Defense, he he was a, a three- or four-star, I believe, before. Austin? Yeah before he became Secretary of Defense so you know the the old army joke uh was that the 6 P's always use the 6 P's of your commander prior planning prevents piss poor performance <laughs> that was the old army 6 P's um i i don't know what happened to that culture of um of holding people accountable and and planning and replanning and replanning and training on the planning you you've um you've made um, and I don't know about the other people in that administration I only know that whoever planned this this operation to leave um, Afghanistan didn't didn't have the correct information and didn't and if they did they didn't act on it uh, a week ago I heard them saying it would probably be 60 days till the Taliban um, took over Kabul Is more like six days. So that's a pretty big failure. Um, And may I, I, David, just say this. You know, the word was always that I was there during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. I was there in the 1968 Tet Offensive. And at that time, I was the S-2 of 2nd Brigade of 1st Infantry Division. And um, I worked with two or three different battalions during Tet, in mop-up operations and protecting uh, a water plant right outside of Saigon called Tuduk. And for months and even years, I have heard about the failure of intelligence in regard to the Tet Offensive. And it is to some degree true, but um, there was a failure of intelligence, a good intelligence at that time, but there were pockets of people who were, we were capturing prisoners and interrogating them, and they were talking about a big movement south. But the difference in Vietnam is this was a very clandestine thing, the way the Tet Offensive happened. It was a brilliant plan by General Jiab. It didn't work. Militarily, they got cleaned out. So we have, from time to time, had failures of intelligence. But the people who got the good intelligence, uh, like, uh, I'm trying to think, General Weyand, who was the second field force commander, which was the area of the 1st Infantry Division was, he brought us down mostly out of the jungles and closer to Saigon because he believed the intelligence. So a good commander will act on the good, corroborated, viable intelligence. A bad commander will take what he wants to hear, sort through that, and ignore the rest of the contradictory information. I can only assume that their their intel information here must have been completely inadequate, because to say you're going to get 90 days and you get you don't get nine days, pretty dramatic turnaround. So, well,
1: the only uh, <laughs> like everything else, Biden seems to do. The only thing that I listen to and and agree with was a plagiaristic uh, statement from FDR about the buck stops here, right. and uh, he's right. It does and. Uh, Again, that comes back to the people you surround yourself with. And uh, the ones that I've seen that are in Biden's fold are not people that I would trust or
2: actually even feel comfortable believing. Well, I don't consider myself an expert on the people that he's got around him. But um, I just look at the evidence of what happened, Uh, the empirical evidence uh, and the empirical evidence is the intel was bad and how or why or but every single person i've heard speak about it whether whether uh... whatever i'm not a political person but whatever somebody's politics may be they would have to admit that this was a terrible failure oh incredible
1: you know and i i've got to say something carry And this this kills me to say it actually uh, we won in my opinion, we had won and could have could have really won in Vietnam, but for whatever reason we chose not to. But if we had continued the carpet bombing of Hanoi and done more bombing during Saigon, we could have walked away with our heads high. And but as far as Afghanistan is concerned, as an American, I'm embarrassed, and this is the first time in my life I've ever been
2: embarrassed of our country. I and join you in that embarrassment. I, I said to my wife last night, it not only takes me back to Vietnam and brings back all of those bad uh, visions of 1975 um, at the embassy, but it makes me ashamed for my for my country and the and the citizens of this country that rely on our military and the quality of our military because we have high quality military. Maybe as high as we've ever had. They're better educated. Turn. It's unbelievable. And the
1: as you know we're we're very much into veterans and those that lost their lives in Desert Shield and Desert Storm and recently in Afghanistan and it just it kills me and you know we we've, we've got to get new and different and we've got to get leadership and um, as I mentioned to you we're one of the other failures and I hope that any and every veteran that's listen, listening If you need your records for any reason you've misplaced them or you need something else that you just didn't have, I'm sorry, but you can't get them from the National Archives Personnel Division. And it's because they've been closed since 29 March 2020. And this is deplorable. I've got senators, I've got representatives working on it, and they can't get a straight answer other than we've been closed, we increased our staff to try to catch up, but then we cut that by 10%. They've got – they don't even have the bones of a skeleton working there, and yet they're all taking their checks. And I'm pleading with anybody that's listening to call their representatives – They are, as far as I'm concerned, the National Archives, the Personnel Administration, is killing veterans right now. If you need your records and you can't get them and the VA won't treat you because you don't have the right record, that's murder, in my opinion. And uh, please... Call your representatives, call your senators, call anybody you can call. I do want to put a shout-out and a thank you to the VA, the uh, VFW, who has agreed to work with us on it on a national basis. And uh, they're
2: going to be putting some heat on them. And uh, we've got to. Well, I'll uh, I'll tell you this. If they have – most people should have, if they kept any semblance of their discharge records together – should have at least their dd-214 and if they've got the dd-214 they should be able to get registered at the va um and and get a va card and start to process through um whether or not uh whatever claims they may have if they have any or just get registered um and put them in the system so a dd-214 is enough if they've got one um if they don't have one, there's a possibility, and I don't know. I was surprised today when you told me that, that uh, they've been shut down since March of 2020. But there is an online way to try and get your DD-214. Yeah,
1: it's a um, military um, – yeah, I'm sorry, I can't think of the name I of I can't either, it but,
2: um, but they can search DD-214 online and there are several websites the the first or second one being the best one if they can get their dd-214 they can get to a va office and uh they can start the process so even though the other records may not be around they might also look through that pile of stuff they give you when you get out it may, you may have your dd-214 not even be aware of it it's a department of defense form that's what the dd is for uh but that's the key to everything the dd-214
1: it is and uh it's uh well not only you as a veteran but your family needs to know where that is too. And uh, work with your family and tell them, you know, we do have benefits and uh, maybe burial benefits or whatever, but uh, keep up with those records. They're the most important thing that you can take with you out of the, out of your service. And uh, so with that we have a lawyer sitting across from us. Boy, you, you came father <laughs> hat. You came out of the military and uh, then did, got your yeah. law degree? Yeah,
2: I, um, I had my college degree, so when I came out of the military, I was on active duty from 63 to 71. Um, and I came off active duty in January 71 as I recall, January February. I can't really recall. that. And uh, I had a wife and two children. Uh, we and I'm originally from Atlanta, so we moved back to Atlanta. And um, I really, my father was a was uh, had a food business where they sold to restaurants and hotels. And I had started law school for a brief period of time, about six weeks before I went on active duty. And he said to me, "You're going to go back to law school." And I said, I, "Not right now. I was um, both. I don't think I was in a good." place, my a good head place to do that at that time of my life. Uh, I was still trying to adjust back to being a civilian and being alive, actually. Um, but several a few years later, I went to law school. Uh, I worked during the daytime, supported my family, went through a divorce, and went to law school at night because it was the only way I could pay my child support and all the rest of that. And uh, and survive. I got myself a little apartment. I went to law school uh, three and a half years at John Marshall Law School here in Atlanta, and I opened up a practice at the age of thirty nine. Did did you
1: happen to uh, run across a guy named uh, Robert D'Agostino?
2: Of course, yeah. You know he does. He was the dean. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, Yeah. he does a show for us. Oh no, I didn't know that. No, uh, Robert is a very bright guy. Of course. And uh, and a good lawyer. As I remember, Robert's specialty back in the day was bankruptcy and and uh, creditor related rights. But um, so I got out of law school. I graduated, and I just um, I decided to just hang out a shingle. I was either going to fail miserably or I was going to make it. I uh, passed the bar the first time. I hung out a shingle in Decatur, and I've been practicing since 1983, basically. Um, or or maybe even a little before that. Um, about 83, I think that's right. So um, I've been there ever since. About 20-something years ago, my son, um, who's my youngest, uh, graduated from University of Florida and decided he wanted to go to law school, so he went to Georgia Law School, and he graduated, and he and I have been practicing together since 1995. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, well, it was, it was a knock on wood for that one. Um, we do my, my son and I do um, as, as professionally what we do is litigation related stuff, both criminal and civil litigation um, and I have um, also involved myself in um, well let me back up a little bit before I tell you that in June of nineteen sixty eight um, I had left the infantry and joined i was commanding an artillery battery that was my original mos was artillery so i'd asked the brigade commander to let me have 105 battery and he said well if you'll extend for a few months there's an opening i can get you the job i said yes sir thank you so i took over a 105 battery and we were we were on a roll we were having some pretty good shoots and and doing some real serious damage to the enemy and in June of 1968, they parked us in the middle of an area called War Zone D, which was right uh, directly east of um, Lak Nin and An Lak and um, near the Cambodian border, about 12, 15 miles from the Cambodian border. But it was literally a hole in the jungle. And we were getting hit day and night. We had uh, the perimeter was only maybe 100 yards away into the, into the jungle. So they could come up and hit us in the middle of the night they could get right on top of us so it was the 28th entry in us And june 22nd 1968 they launched a full-scale ground attack and uh and mortared uh, rocketed all of it and i lost three men that night and i i got wounded myself and i not badly not badly happily uh But I I remember laying on the dirt that night after we'd evacuated everybody we could to the aid station. I remember laying on the dirt up at the aid station with a couple of people I lost. And I thought to myself, Lord, if you just get me out of this mess with arms and legs and a half of a brain, I'm going to give back something somewhere. So since I've been practicing law, um, I've done a lot of volunteer work for veterans pro bono. Myself and one other Vietnam veteran, Greg Studdard, opened a pro bono clinic at the VA Medical Center in Claremont in 1998. Uh, We've at times had as many as 12 lawyers and and as few as just Greg and I. Um, And we estimate we've given about 15,000 pro bono hours since that time. Unfortunately, right now it's closed, but we do not want to... uh, we don't want people to get discouraged when this pandemic is open we're going to reopen that clinic and we'll be seeing people a couple of days a month uh pro bono and we don't care what rank they were and we don't care whether they how much money they make or don't make like some of the programs um we we want you to come in and talk to us about your problems you can do that by registering at voluntary services with the veterans administration i would wait till we're back open again okay probably going to be a couple of months, but I want to make sure everybody knew about that, David. That's
1: great. On that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this.
0: Hello. My name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On
1: Point with Victor Show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor Show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor Show, only right
0: here on America's Web Radio.
1: And you're listening to David's pick, and uh, you're listening to someone that has egg dripping down his from his forehead all the way down. I introduced my guest as Carrie Kelly, and it's Carrie King. I don't even know, Carrie, where I picked up Kelly. I just... Okay. some There's one of those uh, blank spots that you get when you're... Uh, after you turn 70-something, you know? And... Uh, <laughs> I just uh, had one of those uh, brain farts, as they say, and I screwed up, and I'm sorry. So and uh,
2: Don't apologize. It's fine. Your,
1: your uh,
2: practice is called? The practice is called SK Law Group, and we're located on Glen Ridge Drive, um, right near Perimeter Mall, not too far from Perimeter Mall in, in DeKalb County. Well, I guess we're in Fulton County. Fulton County. Uh, on the edge of Sandy Springs and all of that, city of Atlanta. Um, But please do not just come by the office one day or call there. Uh, If you are in need of legal assistance, uh, I'm going to give you my email. And and, um, what you can do is email me um, and then I will try to funnel it through the VA Pro Bono program. Uh, That email is Carrie, that's C-A-R-Y, At SK Law Group, that's L A W G R O U P A T L, being Atlanta, A T L, so it's at Carrie at SK Law Group A T L dot com. Please don't try to call me. I, I, you know, I've got all I can do right now between my private practice and, and trying to help veterans out, but if you send me an email, I'll try to arrange it where where we can have at least a telephone conference,
1: and if you have problems that way, just uh, send an email to g m at America's web radio uh, that you want to get a hold of uh Carrie King and uh we'll be glad to see that uh Kerry gets that and you know i'm I'm pleased and I'm sure you're pleased that the for lack of better expressions, the worm has turned uh, from your arrival back in the States after serving in NAM and not greeted with the applause that you deserved. Um, I'm glad to see that respect has come back to our military. And uh, I, like I said earlier, and, and you agreed that first time in my life that I've been embarrassed by the actions of the United States we've never we've not I say never we've it's not that we haven't made mistakes over the year we certainly have but we we they were not mistakes that I felt like apologizing for it was just a mistake but this fiasco in Afghanistan and the way it's been handled I I can't even believe well I can but that Biden didn't consult one other foreign country leader and say this is what we're going to do or what do you think about this or whatever leaders talk about and just to do it and leave so many foreigners and leave so many Americans I mean, those scenes of people hanging off the jets and falling from the jets is... Heartbreaking. It is.
2: Yeah, I... Um, you know, David, I, and I know you, you share this feeling. I love this country. I mean, um, you know, I've heard other Vietnam veterans say if they ask me to do it, I'd, I'd do it again. Um, I, they br- better bring a lot of cortisone... This time with them to shoot up my knees and my ankles and my shoulders and everything else, but it, but as far as emotionally, um, I think ninety five percent of Vietnam veterans feel the way I do, which is we still love this country just as much as we always did. We've never been ashamed of what we did in Vietnam. We're proud of it. I want to for those of you that may be listening to this program that are Afghanistan veterans or Iraq veterans. Don't ever think what you did went for nothing. We we fought wars, and, and we all know this, combat veterans know, uh, that we fought the war and we served in the military to protect our brothers and our sisters now. Um, so what you did, there might have been occasion where one of us made a mistake and a life was lost, but there are plenty more occasions where lives lives were saved. Because we were there with them, or made the right decision. So, don't ever think what you did uh, went for naught. It didn't. It went for a brave cause, a good cause. Um, it's it's not our fault that this thing collapsed the way it did. It's the fault of leadership, whoever that no, might be, yeah,
1: whoever that, whichever puppeteer it happens to be, or marionette or whatever they call them, but. You know, this is, uh, like I said, uh, I, I find it just hard to believe that we would desert our, not only our people, but people from around the world that were helping us. And just to leave them high and dry,
2: that's not the way that we do it. Well, to show you, David, this is one of the examples that just occurred to me that I, I thought about this. My wife and I were watching um, two days ago when the thing started to collapse. Um, the fact that we brought in, allegedly, 7,000 troops to secure the airport so 2,500 troops could get out, that what kind of sense does that make? So it... And this is not a political statement. It's a it's a failure of leadership. I mean, uh, the prior administration said they wanted to pull out. Was giving dates. You don't give a date on which you're going to withdraw. You do it in a, in a gradual, planned, careful basis. Basis with um, with military forces surrounding your withdrawal to hold off any resistance to it or any attacks while you're vulnerable. And withdrawing is vulnerable.
1: Obviously, as an attorney, you're you've, you're very familiar and and the constitutionality of things, and I'm sure you studied the Constitution up one side and down the other. Which I am the, I love our Constitution, but is there any that you recall off the top of your head any place in the Constitution that holds the leadership? responsible?
2: It's a complicated question. Um,
1: Except for our oath that we all took.
2: Well, if the leadership you're referring to is the president, then yes, I mean, we've all sat through now several impeachments, starting with Clinton, and and then in um, the one attempted impeachment, well, actually there were two, of Trump. Um, so, yes, began anniversary. Yeah, but basically if you if you kind of screw up and you're a leader but you're not the president you can you know you can be fired administratively you can be removed and replaced or you can be asked to resign but there's no real uh, other than treason or sedition there's no real specific constitutional provision that you could rely on to say for example uh, an individual general or or a secretary of defense acted uh, poorly or acted without forethought I don't know of any constitutional provision that you could punish them with they would just lose their job and probably their career would be over uh, and that has been known to happen and in this case
1: uh, I have no doubt that it should to some folks somebody is responsible somewhere and uh, you know I want to throw out uh, before we go to the break right quick that uh, we work closely with a very close friend of ours, retired Colonel Rick White, and uh, Rick is a superman. He's He's the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame in downtown Atlanta and does just one whale of a job, and Rick has to be up there by the At the top of the nice guy list, Uh, he is just a super nice guy, and we appreciate what he does, and, uh, you know, you can judge a man by his children in many cases, and Rick and his wife have a wonderful son called Graham, and Graham is on, I don't know how many tours he's been in Afghanistan and the Middle East, but... uh, he uh, he's now in the war college, which the next time I see him, he'll probably uh, have a star on his collar. And uh, he is a fine, fine gentleman, just like his father. So, with that being said, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Carrie King right after this.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: And we're back on America's Web Radio and David Spick with our guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Kerry King. And again, I apologize for pulling something out of my ear that uh, I don't know where it came from even but uh, Carrie you you distinguished yourself in uh, Vietnam and and uh, I certainly thank you for your service in those years and thank you I apologize for the treatment that you got coming back in and uh, to all Vietnam veterans mm-hmm. and uh, even us some of us that served without going to Nam. Um, I guess I never felt so disappointed as when I flew back from AIT and was told not to wear my uniform. I was proud that I had gone through basic and AIT and could wear it. You as you know? should be. and uh,
2: But we were ordered, basically, don't wear your uniform through I'll, any uh, airport. I'll tell you a story about that. We landed in San Francisco and I was still in khakis um, because when I came back in November 68, um, we they didn't allow you to travel from Vietnam home in fatigues. So they changed yeah. that later. But So I came home in khakis and I had a green uniform and a bag. And um, at the San Francisco airport, they had a, a facility where you could go in and get a shower. You could shave, get your shoes shined, and change clothes. It was like a locker room, and so I did all that, and I got into my green uniform. And I was as I was coming out of the the shop, you know, the locker room area. Uh, there was a colonel standing out there, and he said, uh, "Well, Captain, you know, they're, they're advising you. They're not ordering you, but they're advising you. You might want to change into civilian clothes, to fly back." And I said, "Sir, I'll be honest with you. I just came out of the jungle uh, forty-eight hours ago." uh with the first entry division i don't care what they're advising me i'm proud of this uniform gonna wear it on and he said well good for you and me too so i get on the airplane i'm going to baltimore to meet my wife and my parents who are going to fly up there and meet me because my wife and my my daughter were staying in pennsylvania with her folks and um i sat down in a seat in the front and the uh, at the bulkhead um the stewardess at that time they're called flight attendants now but the stewardess at that time said to me why don't you sit here captain my my uh, brother's in vietnam and i i want you to have plenty of leg room and be comfortable and if i have any meals left over from first class i'll bring him one i said well i appreciate that so i took off my what we used to call our blouse which was the jacket and i folded it up and i put it in the overhead bin so i was sitting there with the green pants the green uniform at that time green pants and kind of a beige shirt black tie fell asleep about 30 minutes into the flight uh, somebody sat down next to me and uh, I kind of woke up back in those days you woke up anybody moved close to you you woke up and uh, the man said "Um, how you doing my name is so and so and I said well it's nice to meet you and he said "Uh, what do you do I said well I'm in the army and he paused for a second he said where are you going i said i'm going home to pick up my wife and my daughter and meet my folks and he said well where, where are you coming from and i said vietnam when i said vietnam he said the answer i think was O." um and then he picked up a magazine and started reading i've i i did not think much about it at the time i didn't think much about it um i fell asleep again Woke up about an hour later, and the stewardess was shaking me and said, I've got a, I saved you a filet. So she brings me a tray, and I said, and I looked, the seat next to me is empty. So I said to the stewardess, what happened to that man sitting next to me? She said, well, he said if you were uh, in Vietnam, he wanted, to, he wanted another seat. So I said, what? What are, what are you talking about? And she said, he said he wanted to sit somewhere else. He didn't support the war effort. So I said, where'd you put him, in the bathroom? She said, no, I picked the worst seat in the back that was available. It was in the middle seat between three seats. And I told you my brother's in Vietnam. She said, and I made sure that everything they brought him was not as good as what it should have been. So, But that was my first experience with uh, a negative attitude towards what we did. Um I didn't understand it then and I don't understand it now. Um, General Moore, Harold Moore, said uh, at a banquet that I attended a few years ago, he said, hate war, love the warrior. People that are in the military that are fighting the wars, they don't love war. They don't. The idea that they are warmongers or that they love war, these are the people that actually have to fight it. They hate it, believe me, worse than anybody. But they know these are proud people with, with pride in this country and they'll do what this country asked them to do they did it in Afghanistan they did it in Iraq and they did it in Vietnam and they'll continue to do it I hope.
1: you know the biggest and this is my opinion I, and I may be crazy a lot of people have accused me of that over the years but the ones that yell the loudest are the ones that never served and have no idea what's going on, and uh, you know, in my opinion, during Vietnam, just like right now, and for the last four years or so, five years, our media has not been the media that I grew up in. When I first, if I had, if I had ever given a newscast and put my opinion into it, I would have been fired we read ap and upi and that was it and uh, we we didn't vary from that at all but you know it's one of those things that it's just like we have medical experts on here that know what they're talking about with covid and yet we got censored and uh You know, we have so many people that are expressing opinions that don't know what they're talking about. And we have that today. We have that. We've had it for the last few years of opinions instead of facts. And uh, the ones that, you know, like I said, yell the loudest. They've never been
2: there, never done that, have no clue. I know. And, um I was explaining to my wife um, about six months ago. We were watching one of the one of the uh, newscasts, and I, I said to her then, as a lawyer, we know that words are very powerful. Uh, when you give a closing argument to a jury or when you describe something or when you cross-examine, the way you use words can have a dramatic impact on what the result of that trial might be. Um, so if if you say, well, I had a if you were a driver and you ran into the rear of somebody, you'd say, well, I had an accident. Well, that might be an accident to you, but to the guy in front of you, it's a collision, and it's and it's a um, it's a violent collision. So if I say, so if I'm giving a newscast and I say that something is a violent collision, it make it's a big difference in me saying there was an automobile accident on I-85. So what I have noticed, and I have pointed this out to my wife several times, listen to both the national and the local media and listen to how many times they use an adjective to describe what is nothing more than a, an event that they should just be detailing the facts of that event rather than trying to characterize it. Uh, they do it with... And all I think they're all guilty of this, every single one of them. Uh, and you're right. I, uh, if you... If you had been a newscaster 30 years ago, I never hear, heard Walter Cronkite use words like that until very late in his career.
1: You know, I'll, I'll tell you something that, uh, and, and Walter Cronkite did it, Chet Huntley, David Brinkley, everybody. Eventually, at, yeah. At the end of their newscast, you'd see him take a sheet of paper and sign it. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do, actually. I, and you know what they were signing?
2: I have no idea.
1: That what I have said is documented, and this is where I got it from. And huh. I, it's not my opinion. This is our producer's opinion, or our producer has given me the information that I was to read. Interesting. Just like Biden has teleprompters, every news anchor mm-hmm. or whatever has a teleprompter and reads off of that, and... And that's why they signed off on it.
2: No, I had I had no idea. Um, Walter Cronkite, if you remember, was the one that came back after the Tet Offensive and said, we're losing the war, and then when he retired and years later wrote his memoir, he retracted that statement and said it was a mistake. He,
1: well, he was hated by the troops. Oh, I know. Uh, oh, he, he was right.
2: Not quite up there with Jane Fonda, but close. Nobody, n- not up there with Jane Fonda, you mean down there. Down there with Jane, there Fonda. Jane
1: yeah. Fonda, exactly, <laughs> right. exactly. Right. But, um, you know, that's, and, you know, we were we were jaded, and this is only my opinion, we were jaded by Hollywood, and and we really didn't ever know a whole lot until M.A.S.H. about North Korea and the Korean War mm-hmm. are policing action but we were jaded by in my, again, my opinion that that war can be romantic and it can be you know, even you'd have all the hugs and kisses in Hawaii after Hawaii was attacked and, and the, you know, and all the movies that came out and, and made it look like war was something great And in some ways, I don't know lack of better terms, but in some ways, World War II was, quote-unquote, a clean war. Okay, there's the line, you're the bad guys, we're the good guys, we're shooting at you, you're shooting back at us, and that's it. But then we got into Vietnam, and how could one human do what was done to other humans in Vietnam?
2: It was as dirty, nasty a war, and as you could get. Uh, But I'll say this: I I think uh, now that I'm 80 years old, I think I can look back, and I can say there aren't any pretty wars. No. And there aren't any pretty rules of war. War is not uh, glamorous, and it's not. um, it, It doesn't work out like in the movies. I'm an old John Wayne. Lover, uh, I've got a big six-foot-four statue of him in cardboard in my basement, um, standing guard if somebody tries to come into my basement. Uh, and I kind of thought that's what it was going to be like, the Sands of Iwo Jima or something. Uh, and in a movie, somebody dies, and it's a character, and you're sad. But then you see him again in a later movie. When they die in combat, you don't ever see them again.
1: No. With that being said, we're going to have to break it off, and uh, I've let us run out of time. But, Kerry, uh, will you come back again?
2: I love talking I'd to you. I'd be happy to, David. I, I'm going to run out of stuff to talk about, though.
1: Nah, not. what kind of attorney are you? you all, you'll always have something
0: to uh, well, say. Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
1: We'll be back. Uh, stay tuned for uh, Ron Bachman and his show.